it's audio rather than video. Okay, it doesn't matter if you want to go just audio and you no, know. No, no, I'm I'm fine. I'm getting myself more in shape before you start asking the questions. <laughs> I think I'm I think I'm better now. All right, welcome to my 90s music podcast, the podcast where I talk to the people who lived, loved, and were in the eye of the storm of the best decade ever, the glorious 1990s. Today, I speak to Scottish and indie national treasure, Douglas T. Stewart, who's a founder member of the BMX Bandits and also the long-serving frontman. It's a lovely hour of chatting through the 90s with Douglas and what it meant to him, including having a full Japanese backing band, some great releases and singles, and touring Japan, touring the world, touring the UK, being signed by Alan McGee to Creation Records, and having Oasis as a support act third on the bill and touring with them all around the UK and beyond. We talk about what Douglas thought of Oasis and how he felt seeing them live in action, which is really exciting. Douglas also chats about the most underrated song on Creation Records, according to Alan McGee, Serious Drugs. We talk about Kylie's Got a Crush on Us and much, much more. Douglas also enjoys talking about collaborating with his friends from Teenage Fan Club, Soup Dragon, Superstar and more. And we also talk about what Douglas is up to now. From being the host with the most and being a Quizmaster Weekly on an online quiz, which you can find at facebook.com forward slash glitterati show. That's facebook.com forward slash glitterati show. Also, Douglas chats about his new single with Anton Newcomb and Hi-Fi Sean, and there'll be some links at the end of the show for that, and also on the release notes of the podcast episode. You can also buy the BMX Bandits My Chain vinyl album and there'll be a link to that at the end of the show and in the podcast notes also. So, without further ado, here's Douglas. So just to start at the start then, so I guess it was just sort of coming into the 90s. What was happening with you? The 90s, the start of the 90s was a strange time for us, the, the very end of the 80s and start of the 90s, because in the mid-1980s, we'd sort of um, found quite a lot of interest and quite a sort of substantial audience. I mean, it's all relative. Yeah, yeah. You know, but it felt, you know, things were pretty positive. And then the record label we were on in the, the mid in the 1980s dissolved and we recorded a couple of tracks and sent them off to lots of other labels like something like maybe 30 different labels and we only got one reply which was a negative (laughs) (laughs) no one else even wrote back right you know and i mean this time i guess we'd had things like we'd had you know quite high placings in things like the Rough Trade Indie Charts and we were getting played in Radio 1, sometimes even daytime Radio 1. Yeah. But there, there was no interest from any labels at all. So I decided to release an album myself, Get Alone, release an album. And I think it was in 1990, just not long after the album came out, which it was released uh, later in 89, I think. Uh, the distribution network for independent records went down. Okay. Uh, 
rough trade distribution. And it meant you couldn't get access to your stock and you weren't going to be getting any payments. Okay. And, you know, I think, I mean, I think labels like Creation, you know, lost serious amounts of money, you know. But for me as an individual, losing a few thousand pounds yeah. uh, was was really, was a really difficult thing. Mm-hmm. And it was strange. We started uh, getting asked still to play, like, gigs and places like the New Cross Venue in London and stuff like that. And we were getting almost the biggest audiences we ever had, but we were in this really strange position because we'd had a record out, which had, I think Dunn's was starting to do sort of okay. Yeah, yeah. But we couldn't get any copies of it to sell. Shops couldn't get it. And I was sort of personally in debt. And then at one of these gigs in London, I was approached by this guy from Japan called Tetsu, mm-hmm. who said that he would like to release a BMX Bandits new album. And he also wanted to take BMX Bandits to Japan. And it was like, <laughs> yeah, well, what? You know, it, was, it just felt such an amazing turnaround. And um, yeah, the first time I went to Japan, uh, um, I went with the band Heavenly, who mm-hmm. was sort of friends with because they had the earlier band tour, Lagosh had been label mates with us on 53rd and 3rd. And I had a Japanese backing band. Seen the food. Yeah. Yeah, they'd kind of just learn all, pretty much all of the BMX bandits recorded output, you know, and learned it really, really well. Played there, and people were so excited. At that time, to put it in context, none of their kind of peers had played in Japan. You know, the Passos hadn't played in Japan. Teenage Fan Club hadn't played in Japan. I mean, obviously, that was very early days for Teenage Fan Club, but uh, the Vaseline's hadn't played in Japan. So, we, well, I played in Japan the first time, and then it wasn't out. Maybe another six months later, the whole band went out, and it sort of felt like we were almost representing the whole of the kind of Glasgow music community. Yeah. Funnily enough, Primal Scream were in Japan uh, for their first time, the same time as that, as I was. And um, by that point, they weren't really a Glasgow band anymore. Mm. But um, back in the kind of uh, mid eighties, we'd been pretty firm friends, like Bobby and myself, and people like Norman, and yeah. yeah. Uh, so it was a kind of strange, you know, it was one of these things you were there and you were going, "It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, I can't believe it." And then, um, you know, I think Bobby went and got his hair cut in a kind of Japanese style, right. and he made the front of the music papers. And after that, there started to be a bit of a, a flood of bands going to Japan. And uh, so we recorded this album, Star Wars, which was our first album of the 1990s, Mm. which, you know, people seemed to like a lot and we started to get offered more gigs. And we actually, I bump into a few people who ran record labels and going, oh yeah, sorry, uh, you wrote to me and I never replied. If you'd written to me in 1987, I would have been biting off your hand to release BMX Bandits records, but it just felt like something, there'd been a kind of line drawn under a certain thing that was happening in music that they associated us as being part of. 
and they're going, but now I see you sort of think maybe I made a mistake. Then Teenage Fan Club uh, sort of happened. Mm. And after the first album, Alan McGee had came up to uh, Motherwell, uh, which for those who don't know, you know, is a kind of ex-industrial uh, town, fairly large town outside Glasgow. And um, to hear the new Teenage Fan Club demos for their second album, Bandwagon-esque. And Norman had put on Serious Drugs, mm-hmm. which he co-wrote with myself and Joe McLinden. And this is the way I remember it, because uh, Teenage Fan Club had a little kind of rehearsal studio and other own things. And I don't think Alan realised that this wasn't a Teenage Fan Club thing. Mm-hmm. And I guess on the first version of that track, Joe McLendon sang lead vocals, but his vocals pretty similar to Norman's voice on that track. And Alan, uh, I think, said, "That's going to be a single. That'll be that'll be massive." Yeah. yeah. And then Norman was like, "Oh, that's not Teenage Fan Club. That's actually been expanded." And Alan, I think, was sort of aware we existed, but didn't really know what we sounded like, and then maybe formed an opinion in his head that we were a sort of a joke band or kind of novelty band, mm. possibly to do with my kind of... I think I've got this kind of persona that um, I present things with a bit of humour and things, so people sometimes don't see beyond that. Um, but anyway, to cut a long story short, when he discovered it was being expanded, so he's like, I've been so wrong about this band. And then he listened to other stuff and he's like, I need to open up people's ears. Yeah. That this isn't a silly joke band. This is a band that got, you know, really interesting music. And Serious Drugs at the time was slightly kicking against what the current thing was. The current thing was quite noisy and uh, kind of grungy and vocals very often buried, uh, quite low in the mix. And, you know, when you think that track was recorded in, I think it was 1991 or 92, it wasn't released till a couple of years after that. Mm-hmm. The way it used things like vocal harmonies and, you know, uh, was very deliberately going to be quite melodious and pretty, was sort of going against the curve. Yeah. By the time it was actually released, there was other records that came out were almost more in that vein. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it was a strange thing because the Radio 1 producers uh, heard that and seemed to really love it and were like, oh yeah, we're going to A-list this and it was going to be somebody's record of the week and, and then the next thing we'd were anti-drugs week. Oh no. And the hook line of the single is get some serious drugs. And it's not about recreational drugs or not about kind of dangerous drugs. It was just kind of a song about depression and medication and things like that. But when the hook lines get some serious drugs and you're having an anti-drugs week, it doesn't, it doesn't really fit. So like other records had before it, it got banned by Radio 1 and... Oh. You know, Frankie Goes to Hollywood got banned by Radio 1, goes straight to number one. Je t'aime by Serge Gainsbourg and Jane Birkin, straight to number one. B-Mix Badits get banned by Radio 1 and it disappears. You know, it gets 
really good reviews and, you know, people seem to like it. And, you know, I hear about, you know, various bands around the world are doing cover versions of it in their set. And, you know, um, so it felt like, yeah, it was one of those records, which funnily enough, I'm the sort of guy who loves. Yeah. I reckon that people thought it was kind of important and in some way doing something that wasn't happening at that time particularly. But, you know, these records don't ever actually become hits or big sellers, or if they do, maybe it's many, many years later. I'm hoping that'll come <laughs> one day. But, but, you know, things like Big Star Records or Velvet Underground Records, uh, they didn't sell really when they were released. But years later, people look back and go, well, that was an important record. Yeah, it's just part of culture. And what, and yeah. what did, you ha- did you have to change anything for, for you singing it live and, and things like that? Did it have to become... Yeah, we put it in a different key. Um, it's in the key of A when I sing it live because it was a funny thing, I guess, when I heard it. I don't think I'd really found my voice as a singer. I mean, I'm not really a singer in the way that somebody like Norman's a singer. You know, I don't have a technical ability as a singer. I'm more of a, I'm a vocalist, you know, and a lot of my favourite people in groups are vocalists. Like Eugene Kelly is a vocalist. That, you know, Calvin Johnson would be a vocalist. You know, people who don't necessarily, they're not technically the best singers, but they've got a thing that they do. And I heard that, in a way that I wanted it to sound really smooth and beautiful. And I thought my voice didn't really fit with the sound that I wanted it to have. Yeah. I think if I'd written it now, I'd probably feel more confident about it because I, I feel I can sing a lot. My, my sort of range is improved and I can sing a bit smoother. And uh, But I wanted it to be a sort of record because I've always loved art. It does that thing where you go, I love this artist, I love this artist. And then something happens, you go, I didn't see that coming. Uh, and at first you're even slightly confused by it. So I actually wanted it to be a record that people would put on and go, that's the beam expandance? Uh, what? I mean, that doesn't sound like that big, strange guy singing. And you know, <laughs> and it's the funny thing is, it's actually quite a humorous song. Mm-hmm. You know, it's... The, the, it's kind of maybe slightly dark humour, but the idea it was based on a real conversation. I was dating a girl who was a medical student, and she said to me, "Oh, you know, you don't need those antidepressants. You know, my love will make you feel better." All this stuff. Cut to a month later, she was like, "Maybe you should get some stronger tablets." <laughs> and I remember when that relationship disintegrated, sitting on the train going home from Aberdeen and kind of chuckling and covered <laughs> up with a little bit of like an idea for a was a musical scene where she'd go you know or I'd go I don't think I can take it much longer and she'd go maybe your tablet should be stronger <laughs> uh, so I woke up really early in the mornings and pretty much had the, the song in my head and sung it down on the phone to Norman about I don't know six or seven o'clock in the morning and we went in the studio and recorded it that day and it was really just the only bit BMX Bandits on the recording uh, were myself, Norman and Joe McLinden. The other guys, we'd pretty much finished working on an album that we'd been doing. And we're like, we've got this new thing we're wanting to record. And I think the other guys were like, "Mm, okay, we'll just maybe take a day off and let you guys go on with it. And then 
Well, around that time as well, like there was quite a few similar sounding things to it. So yeah, you know, Kylie's got a crush on us was like super fun. Um and and the versions of that, you know, uh Hole in My Heart, I thought was great as the as the B side. Yeah, that was um I mean, that was very much a Francis track. Yeah. But they had that kind of real chimey acoustic, mm-hmm. really digging into the acoustic guitar, you know, really bright. Yeah. I think we were we were all very interested in uh, things like the three big star albums. Yeah. And we'd sort of gotten to know Alex Shelton a little bit. And um, I think when Francis did Hole in My Heart, it, it was possibly slightly trying to emulate, not copy, but emulate the way that that track had connected with him, mm-hmm. you know. And um, Francis, you know, co-wrote and wrote quite a lot of the, you know, the most loved probably beam expanded songs of the 90s. Yeah. You know, he was, um, when the band started out, it was really Sean Dixon and myself were the two leaders of the band. And then uh, the kind of end of the 80s, it, it became really myself and Norman um, were kind of, kind of leading writers and stuff. But I would say definitely from the kind of early 90s uh, until, you know, the very early 2000s, kind of start of 2000, and it was Francis and myself were leading the band. And I think because I'm the front man, sometimes maybe people uh, almost forgot about the fact that Francis was a big contributor at that time, you know, because he was sitting behind the drums most of the time, but he was also a really great guitar player and keyboard player and, uh, you know, a really good harmony singer and writer uh, and, and, and very good to collaborate on ideas with. Uh, so yeah, it's again it's strange because there's something like Kylie's got a crush on us became part of the story, and this genuinely is not me dissing that song at all. Mm. But in a way, I almost want. I sometimes think was that a misfire for us to do that because it wasn't really our song, right? Okay, it was Jerry Love of Teenage Fan Club wrote that yeah. song. For a side project he had with his pals, well, Brendan was involved from the fan club, they had a kind of fun project called The Clydesman. And I think Jerry was playing bass with us at a couple of shows, kind of just standing in at some point, or maybe even guitar. And it was just about the time he'd written that song. Uh-huh. And it just sort of felt like a fun thing to do, to just do it because the Clydesmen weren't doing gigs and things. So we just sort of done it. And it's, you know, it's such a great pop song. It's yeah. so catchy and people sort of really, you know, latch on to it. But um, Alan McGee felt, oh, yeah, that's so great. Um, and it is, you know, it's a, a great catchy pop song. But I think in a funny way, it almost reinforced in certain people's heads, oh, yeah, being expansive, they're a kind of jokey band. Yeah. It was almost like, after we'd done serious drugs, then people went, oh, no, so they are a jokey band. Yeah. And I was the singer again on Kylie's Got a Crush on Us, so it was like, oh, I like the stuff that the other that the other guy does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not really known that that was my song, but, you know, then there's this jokey stuff that the big guy does. Yeah. Um, 
So it was a kind of it was a strange situation. But I mean, I do think it's a great a great song. I think I think it's better than than the Beam Expanded version. I think yeah. they kind of nailed it. Well, I guess it's like you know, if you see any REM stuff, you know, it's their hang up with shiny happy people. You know, did, did that misfire them into other direction? You know, so kind of having that, people take it in two ways. You know. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, sometimes you, you think, well, it's a gateway for people to discover your other music. So that's a good thing, yeah. you know. And then I guess, so in the 90s, you were quite prolific then in terms of releases. So Star Wars, Life Goes On, Getting Dirty, Theme Park Towards the End. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, what happened with all those records? I mean, Life Goes On was a, a real big one in, in my personal life as well. And I worked at our price in Irvine and, you know, we always had it on and stuff like that. and. You know, what did you find with going through those records and, and what happened with touring and all these things? Yeah, I mean, it was a really exciting time. It was the first time, I guess, where it felt like, well, this was, I don't mean it in a boring way because it would never got boring, but it felt like, well, this is actually a thing that we could potentially be making a living out of and supporting ourselves through. And, and we were for, I guess, a, a time. And, you know, uh, touring was so odd then because now the, the invention of the sand have <laughs> has revolutionised. I mean, and obviously right now there's problems with doing touring, but, you know, you would turn up for a gig in Hull at a venue you'd not played before and find yourself driving around Hull for two hours, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, trying to find the venue. <laughs> uh, and, um, yeah, it, and you could do things like tour in the UK for a month or a month and a half, you know, and with great times touring generally, you know, we uh, everybody in Beam Expand it's pretty much has always been really big music fans. So it was um it was very much the era of the mixtape and and so there was a great opportunity to be turning each other on to you know, music we loved or music we all already loved, you know, like, you know, there was a lot of things like uh, early Todd Rungan albums and albums by bands like Harper's Bazaar and Sagittarius and the Millennium that we picked up when we'd been in Japan, kind of soft pop, vocal harmony kind of stuff, mm-hmm. very melodious, well-arranged music. And we would have these mixtapes and, you know, Travelling around town, and then when when you're and also you had a tour manager who would make sure that you all got your breakfast in the morning and and that all of your bags would be in your hotel rooms and with a guitar tech and you know we kind of people sort of looking after us and so it was a bit maybe you're slightly spoiled but I mean compared to some bands we didn't have caterers and we didn't have all this sort of stuff. But it was it was exciting, you know, and we got to go on tour with uh, a few bands that we had adventures like with Sean and Knife. We did a really quite long tour where we took it turnabout, Sean and Knife kind of girl group from Japan, and we would take it and turn about. Uh, you know, one night they would go on last, and one night we would go on last, and we would usually end up joining each other for a song at some point and became really good friends and. You know, we had, we had great adventures. We had a really strange tour manager for that tour who, for some reason, objected to the idea that we were becoming 
really friendly to uh, Sean and I. And um, one time we were going to a gig and we stopped at a service station and when we came out, the van was gone and the Sean and Knife were gone as well. And eventually, there was no mobile phones or anything at that time. Uh, Francis' sister somehow managed, who lived relatively near, managed to get us to the other venue where we went and he said, I just felt you and the girls were getting too close and it was a bad influence on the girls. And I mean, we weren't like, you know, crazy party animals doing lots of drugs then. So I decided it was time to drop the next bandage from the tour. You're thinking, but we're paying your wages. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't like working for creation or working. He was our employee. Yeah. <laughs> it was really strange behavior, you know. And um, at the end of the, the tour, we discovered that he'd squandered most of the the profits, unfortunately, for the tour and things like that. Oh. But the actual, it still didn't take away from the excitement. Yeah, and went so with great adventures. And um, I guess one of the other uh, big legends is, and um, well, it's not a, an untrue legend. It's true that yeah, B Mix Bandits ended up taking Oasis on our first tour. Yes, and um, it was eighteen wheeler as well. Yeah, eighteen wheeler as well. Yeah. And at that time, eighteen wheeler were higher up the bill. Mm. You know, they, they were a, they were a bigger draw uh, than, than Oasis. So it was, um, Oasis didn't do the whole tour, but we did, you know, several dates. I've still got the actual little tour brochure. Yeah, yeah. Because at that time you would get a little um, tour itinerary. You know, it would tell you what hotel you were staying at, what venue was, loading time. And that is funny, you kind of look at it and it's like, you know, all these gigs. Beam Expanded, blah, blah, blah. 18 Wheeler, you know, Oasis, 7 o'clock, it would be. 7 o'clock. You know. They'd be on stage or whatever, and there'd be like 30 people watching them or something yeah. like that. Basically, Alan McGee had said to me, they hadn't released any records at that point, eh, would you take Oasis out in some dates? And he'd sort of said, oh, I've asked a bunch of other bands at Creation, and they'd all said no, right. um, because they hadn't heard of them. And I just have such an affection and respect for Alan. And he'd done so much for us and been so behind us. I was like, of course. Yeah, yeah. You know, because it felt like, and it, it, it's true, you know, Alan's one of the guys who helped change my life, you know. And I think sometimes bands can get a little bit too caught up in themselves and what's happening and not be that grateful for it. But I think BMX Band has always had the kind of thing of, no, we, we, we're grateful that people yeah. are giving us support and... Uh, such support, like, you know, Alan would call people into the creation office when we recorded a new track and play it to all of the members of staff and go, I want everybody in this organisation 100% behind us. I think yeah. this is really an important record. And you couldn't ask for anything yeah. more than that. It was funny because, um, yeah, there was definitely something, you know, because we, we watched them and, and you thought, this could be big. Yeah. I remember Alan phoning me up during the tour and saying, what, what do you think? And I think I, I said something like, you know, they could be creations you too. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And it wasn't based on they were my favourite band in the label. Yeah. They definitely weren't. But for me, I think for me it was like Liam had this 
magnetism. Yeah, he had aura. No. When he when he played on stage with us, he was maybe playing a really small crowd, but he totally he just had that thing, that yeah. presence where he felt totally at home in that role. Totally and totally in control of that role that he had. And um, in the same way, well not in the same way, but I guess a bit like, you know, someone like John Lydon or something, he just had that kind of persona that was kind of hard to not engage with. It's uh, funny, and of course, yeah. like Noel said, oh yeah, we'll totally repay, we'll totally repay this favour, you know, when, yeah. we, when we, but... Uh, no waiting. <laughs> it, 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 never, it never really came through in that. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've seen both Noel and Liam probably about 10 years after that tour, separately. And Liam, you know, couldn't have been friendlier. You know, he was so warm and friendly and happy to see us and, you know, asking about how the other guys in the bands are doing and their kids and all that sort of thing. And, and Doe was, he just didn't want to know. All right. You know, it was like... <laughs> yeah, <isn't> it? <laughs> but at the time, you know, that was it's strange because sometimes, uh, yeah, you think people don't really change that much. And that was the sort of vibe even back then mm. that you know um we had a, a this very kind of warm a kind of quite visceral kind of personality mm. uh, and I, I i still think for me that i i think it has patterned the just how massive the band became Mm. shouldn't be underrated yeah that well, was huge and then what about you then in terms of you know big highs of the 90s you know if you look back on the 90s across the whole thing are there a few moments that really stand out that you thought that sums it up for you or that was incredible I mean definitely the Japan tours were pretty amazing because we would have like people kind of camping outside a hotel oh, yeah you know, and you, you'd be getting the train from Tokyo to Osaka and it would be, you know, mainly girls kind of running along the train as it was departing the station or, you know, you'd be walking down a street in Tokyo and a couple of people would bump into you and maybe burst into tears because they were so excited. And then you, and then I would go back to Bell Sill, you know, the go to the local supermarket. And nobody would give a shit. You know? <laughs> I mean, like, oh, right. Is that big weird? Oh, right. I'm again. <laughs> so that definitely an amazing feeling, but it wasn't. I think the thing that felt so amazing was just the level of interest and passion in the actual music from that audience. It didn't feel like they were doing it because they thought we were hip or the music papers had told them we were hip. It was, they made a kind of musical connection, you know, and they would very often, if they were talking to you after shows, kind of say, oh, do you like this music? Do you like this music? Yeah. And sometimes it turned you on to things you didn't know, but other times you go, yeah, that, that's like a lot of the stuff that we really like and love. But, you know, when we meet fans of their music, when we're out touring in Britain or whatever, they don't, it's always like we don't know any of music, we only know what's in the current kind of indie charts, what we're hearing uh, on kind of indie pop radio. Yeah. They don't, you know, they, they, they don't kind of go any further than that. Yeah. 
So yeah, that was definitely one of the the, the big things. And um, yeah, as I say, then I think Alan says this himself. You know, create, creation unfortunately became almost a victim of her own success. Yeah. And I think he said this. You know, when Sony got involved in things and the big lawyers and the big accountants, they weren't interested in. You know, Alan going, well, I think BMX Bandits will be seen as a really important band someday. They were like, yeah, but they're not selling X million copies. So why have we got them when we've got, you know, this act? But do that. Why Why would you be putting time, energy and money mm. into? And it wasn't just BMX Bandits. There was a bunch of bands, which... Um, uh, I know, like, Alan uh, was very, very much behind and Dick Green as well, his partner. But it sort of became this... It became so successful, it almost destroyed itself. Yeah. And also, these guys are leading it from the spreadsheet, you know, mm-hmm. rather than with the heart or any intuition, you know? And yeah, totally. You know, there's a lot in my line of work, you know, there's breweries take over, you know, other breweries. And it's the wee craft breweries that are the best beers and the most fun and the thing. And they just get, you know, killed, you know, because mm-hmm. they want, the, they want the, the carling of the world, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's difficult. And then um, I was sort of proved wrong the other night. Norman was doing a listening party for Grand Prix. Um, and I always thought Neil Young was about you. Oh, he says that in the listening party. He did say that in the listening party. Ah, because yeah. I must have missed that bit because I read and I was like, I'm so sure that was about Douglas. Aye, yeah. Aye. I think he was talking about the title coming from a mixture of Carol Young that and Neil Young. Was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because originally, Norman might have forgot this one, he gave me a tape of the song, um, like a very early demo that just he'd done himself. And at that time, it said on the tape, Brothers in Rock. And that was the name the song and um, you know uh, he was like this is a song I've written sort of about you and kind of for you and so yeah so and there's like clues in it like dropped a letter from your name because like I don't have an O in Douglas and it was yeah sort of a a little bit of a kind of fictionalised version of a a romance, but I wasn't in at that time, but I'd been in years before. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, so yeah, it, it definitely was good. But I remember when he called it, when he called it Neil Young, I was a bit like, I wasn't wanting to be called Douglas Stewart, but I was a bit like, <laughs> why are you called it Neil Young? <laughs> it's like a kind of bizarre kind of pun or something, yeah. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, if I'm ever at a teenage fan club show and they play it of course you've got so many great songs you don't play that one every time but it does make me feel pretty nice when you know we're playing that and the audience are all singing along particularly and they're going nowhere you know yeah Yeah, but so yeah it is yeah guilty guilty as charged it's um i'm I'm pleased about it because i was a bit i was like what thought i I missed i missed the the follow-up and then, uh, just kind of very quickly, because I know I'll need to let you go as well. Um, so, just coming to the, the mid-90s, you know, Britpop and, and the end of the 90s, how did you feel about Britpop? Did you have kind of one foot in, one foot out? Did you stand outside it? What, how did you feel about the Britpop scene? I think we always stood outside of other things. It's a funny thing, because a lot of my friends' bands 
had the thing of being the favourite band of the big three music papers of that time, mm. Enemy Sounds and uh, Melody Maker. We never had that. We almost had it for a wee while around about serious drugs, but up until serious drugs, you know, journalists who wrote three papers and really liked me, particularly the Enemy, would say, guys who come and go, I'm trying to get a BMX Bandits article and I can't get it. Or there was a BMX Bandits review and the editor was like, no, no, only knock a star or two off that because enemy don't support bands like BMX Bandits. You know, that's not our kind of thing. So we were always, in a way, uh, outsiders. And a lot of time bands start off as outsiders, but they get inside. Mm. I'm not saying I don't want to get inside, I think we've always remained sort of outsiders. And there's a sort of advantage to that because you can sort of do what you want to do. When, you, when you're sort of accepted and things like that and something you're delivering is creating a lot of revenue, not just for yourself, but for other people and things like, you know, you might have caterers going into it with you. Suddenly you've got this different level of responsibility. Yeah, yeah. And it's about like, you know, if you don't deliver with your next album and have a hit, what are all these people going to be doing for a job? And, uh, you know, and your concert sales might not. If you make a, your next album's a bit challenging, your concerts, being expanded, have never really had to care about that particularly because we've never been in that position where other people are really counting on it or other people really have their eye on the dollar thinking we can make some money out of this. So if, you know, we're doing an album and we want to put like a track that sounds like a kind of Euro disco track or, you know, some sort of like six minute uh, Asian influenced instrumental or something like that, we can do it because we don't have to go, you know, but, but we need you to deliver a certain kind of product. Yeah. And it goes through the whole history of rock. You know, people, you read about artists being really frustrated because the record label and sometimes even other members of the group wanted them just to stick to the formula that was delivering the dollars. You know, the Beach Boys, of course, is a good example of it. Pet Sounds came along. And, you know, certain factions in the record label and in the band were going, what are you doing? People want surf records from us. And of course, the strange thing is, at the time, these other factions were sort of right, because yeah. Pet Sounds was their least successful album commercially in America. But the other side of it is, they were wrong in the long term, yeah. because in the long term, people saw Pet Sounds and some of the records after that as being the really important records that you know Brian Wilson made as an artist. And I sometimes think sometimes too much success, maybe I'm just saying this because I've not had it, but um, sometimes too much success I think can kill the art a bit. Yeah, definitely. I think there's certain artists who manage to continue being artists and then there's other people it's almost like they go, but I need to do this. Yeah. I don't really, I would sort of like to be doing new exciting things, but people want this. And if I do this, I know. Yeah. There's you many know, people that achieved it, though. I mean, maybe your radio heads and that, you know, they seem to still get to do what they want. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, thinking about home, I mean, bands like Trash Cancer and Arches and stuff, you know, they never 
played the game. You know, they always stood a bit outside in, in that mm-hmm. way and, you know, that sort of worked out the way it's worked out. And I know, and they've never almost been... It's like, they are, there is a parallel. Where, you know, we're obviously quite different bands in some ways, but a parallel of never being totally flavour of a month. Yeah. But over the long term, people become kind of loyal to you and trust you. So, you know, I would get... We would make an album like My Chain, which on first listen felt very, very different. And certain people wrote to me and said... When I first heard the new album, I really wasn't sure about it at all. Mm-hmm. But because it was BMX Bandits and I trust you, I stuck with it. Yeah, and now it's my favourite album. Yeah. You know, which I think with some bands, it's more the sort of thing of, well, that's not what I wanted. Yeah. So, <laughs> but, you know, I, I think there are certain bands because people go, yeah, there's an integrity here. Yeah. And so I'm going to give it more of a chance. I'll go with it. I'll go with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just fast forward into now and then some quick fire questions. So now yes. you've got your uh, live performances still going on, still touring. Uh, well, when this is over, quizzes. Um, you did some stuff at Freckfest with my mate Craig, which was great. Yeah, yeah. That was uh, fun because of we, I think we played the first ever Urban Rock in the Water kind of thing. It was us. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah so it was a, it was a strange one. So yeah, that was quite. A nice, you know, thing to kind of return to, because that day and the gig in Beef, again, they were actually almost a little bit like gigs in Britain, where it almost felt a bit like the excitement was really big. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, in the audience, it almost felt like people were going, what? Yeah. BMX Bandits are playing here rather than, oh, BMX Bandits are playing. <laughs> well, everything was so great because, you know, the Freckfest story anyway about Willie Frenton mm. and all that and and you know, but he brought Chuck Berry, the Smiths, Madness, Wonder Stuff, you guys, he did he, the Oasis thing, you know, mm-hmm. with the tents, which is 25 years last weekend, I think. And you know, all that stuff, and it just was so weird. Like, Irvin, there's not much going on in Irvin, and never really is, but we just always had these spikes that you know, I don't mean whoever was coming to town, but when someone was coming to town. We, we'd all go nuts for it, you know, and it was yeah. the biggest thing to happen that year, if not two or three years. So mm-hmm. we, we really appreciated it, you know. It was just, it was outside the Magnum, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, and then really you're doing your quizzes on a Tuesday night? Yeah, um, I've always loved quizzes since yeah. I was a kid. I used to drive my family crazy by, you know, asking questions about pop records I liked and episodes of Columbo and stuff like that <laughs> when I was a kid. And... I don't know, I've just always loved really trivial information that's not particularly important to people and retained it. And um, I go to a regular uh, quiz night at the Sparkle Horse in Glasgow and I've you know, occasionally been a guest presenter there and on Tuesday nights I was presenting a regular quiz at a Glasgow venue called The Flying Duck. And then when it kind of stopped, I just took a few weeks so I could watch how stuff online was working because mm-hmm. I, I realised if I just jumped in I would could, could maybe do a, make a bit of a mess of it so I kind of watched and tried to figure out what worked and what didn't work and then started doing quizzes and for the first few weeks the audiences were really pretty big because I guess people were really crying out for something mm-hmm. and they've kind of come down but they've kind of settled and yeah. I get really lovely messages from people saying, you know, oh, it's the highlight of my week. And, you know, I really, with all, all the kind of madness and 
uh, uncertainty happening in the world. It feels like a, a sort of oasis of you know, kind of silliness and fun and kind of good-heartedness. And that's what that's sort of what it's meant to be. It's, I mean, that's what being expanded are also meant to be. It's a, a bit of, um, you know, there's this other place you can go to where things hopefully will always be good when yeah. you go to that world. When you go to the world of BMX bandits, and it'll hopefully transport you to a place where you don't feel quite as much stresses and worries and maybe it'll bring back memories of, you know, other times and stuff. Yeah. Uh, so the quiz is, you know, again, it's not really just about, you know, being a brainiac. It's sort of, again, an extension of my world. You know, and it's, it's quite, there's a lot of people who take part who sometimes don't even do very well scoring, but keep coming back week after week because they enjoy yeah. just the sort of world I think I kind of try and create in the, in the quiz. No, it's definitely fun. And how can people get onto the quiz then? Is it Facebook? Yeah, it's on Facebook on Tuesday nights, 8 o'clock. It's on a page called Glitterati. Uh-huh. But if they, if they follow me on Facebook, I always obviously post or if they follow Beam Expandits, We'll, we'll, we'll find links to, you know, well, all the previous quizzes are up there, and um, but you, the new one will always be up in the, the next Tuesday night. Okay, so and, quick fire questions then. So, mm-hmm. best song in the 90s? Best song in the 90s. Um, it's funny because I kept trying to resist picking one by a friend or by yeah, one sure. by somebody I knew because I just was like, Oh, it just feels like I'm doing it because it's, but it genuinely isn't that. Uh, I would say probably my best song of the nineties is "Alcohol Holiday," right. uh, written by Norman Blake, performed by Teenage Fan Club. I remember when I first heard it, and I loved. You know, I heard, I heard "God Knows It's True," and I was like, "Oh, this is the best thing I heard." Then I heard "Alcohol Holiday," and I was like, "Actually, this is the best right. thing I heard." It just sounded so amazing and so emotional and musical. And Norman singing was so great, uh, playing. And whenever I hear it, it never grows tired. I just, um, you know, there's other Teenage Fan Club songs I probably love just as much, but there's just something about that one. Just, And it's funny, when Alex Chilton came to town, he came to Glasgow, and uh, they were in a rehearsal studio, and they were, like, doing some of his songs and things. And it's like, could I have a go at singing one of your songs, you know? like to sing Alcohol a day, have a go doing that, and, you know, taking the solo and things. Uh, yeah, just, it's a beauty. Yeah. Best album? Best album of the 90s. That is actually a, a, a difficult one for me, and I haven't actually prepared, <laughs> I haven't prepared my answer for this. Um, I, I think, for me, my favourite album of the 90s is actually an album called Jukebox Alarm by a band called Stereo Total, who are a kind of French-German band. Uh-huh. And um, I don't know, they just combine a lot of elements of stuff. I love elements of things like Serge Gainsbourg and certain types of European pop, but also something about suicide and the cramps and stuff like that in the sound as well. It's kind of sexy and dumb, but very melodic. And kind of, it's got a little bit of a grimy underbelly in a good way as well yeah. um, but they're they're definitely one of my big favourite bands of the 90s they're one of the bands I would I would watch and go they are going to be 
absolutely massive. You know, I remember when I saw Paul Pitts say just before, I mean, Paul had been gone for years, but it was just before it really broke and yeah. seeing him go, oh, this is going to be massive. Yeah. And you're right. You go, yeah. all right. So when it is massive, you go, in stereo total, one of the bands, you'd be in a room and everybody, you'd think, everybody in the room thinks this is the best thing ever. Yeah. It's going to be massive. But it never quite became massive. But yeah, story, stereo total, jukebox alarm. It's my favourite album of the 90s. And then best band of the 90s? Best band? Well, for the late 90s, as I say, probably stereo total are my favourite band of the kind of late kind of 90s. Um, I do think... Uh, there's, there's just a few that I just love, you know, and, and, and the fan club are definitely one of them. Uh, and I think it's a strange thing, and because I actually think the bias in myself is, you know, Norman's like one of my brothers, you know, Sean's like one of my brothers, and uh, just the fact it's so much for me, when I look at it, it's like looking at a really beautiful picture of, you know, a sky that I kind of really love and, you know, think so highly of. So. Uh, memories of being at lots of teenage fan club shows in the kind of 90s, you know, is definitely pretty special. But there's, there's so many I've always been crazy about. And a lot of my favourite bands of the 90s are actually bands from the 70s or the 60s, right. but they're bands that I discovered yeah, yeah, in yeah. the 90s. Uh, and then last, last two is best gig you went to as a punter and best gig you played? Best gig I went to in the 1990s uh, I think, and I went to a series of gigs by this guy in the 1990s, Jonathan Richmond. Okay. And the Renfrew Ferry, I think it was May 92. And as I say, I've seen him other times in that venue, some King Tuts, so, so many great shows. For me, his, he is the greatest live artist in the world. Wow. Hands down. There's no one that can touch him. You know, and one of the greatest pleasures I've had in my life is taking sometimes people who have joined my BMX bandits to a Jonathan Rickman show for the first time and watching, almost watching their face and them just kind of going, this is just, this is a different level. And I remember, you know, seeing Norman years later about, you know, taking a couple of the younger members of the bandits at that time to see Jonathan Richmond and going, that's like taking them to school. Right. You know, yeah. That's the best it can get. <laughs> and... It just, it was one of the gigs, he plays so quietly, and apart from when he wants noise, yeah. people are just listening intently and loving it, and if you turned around, just everybody would look completely engaged. Nobody would look like, for sort of, they're trying to be cool, or, you know, they're not really knowing what's going on, but we want to be part of this kind of peer thing. Just that thing, and that was a thing I always... He was the guy who made me want to make music. Yeah. And the thing I loved was it just connected with people. It wasn't about being hip or cool. And, of course, it was hip and cool because it wasn't trying to be, but it just connected with people in a really uncynical way. And I always wanted to try and do that myself. And then the best gig you played to finish up? Best gig I played, um, I think, was possibly um, a gig in Tokyo, which I think was in 1991. Mm-hmm. when Eugene uh, was playing with, with BMX Bandits and we went and we, they wouldn't let us pretty much finish. We just, it was like encore after encore after encore. And we'd started doing songs that we'd never played before in our lives and 
it was just it was just so exciting. And again, it was that thing of turning to all of your uh, fellow bandits and looking at their faces in the mall and like, it's so good to be alive. <laughs> you know, and everybody in the room just felt like everybody in the room was going, wow, being alive is a good thing, you know. Brilliant. Well, listen, I'll end it there and I'll let you go and go on with your life. Um, oh, was- can I give a plug to some? Of course, yeah, yeah. do it. Because people get cross if I don't. There's a reissue of a not 90s album, but an album, My Chain, which is coming out. Um, well, it's sort of available to pre-order. You'll find it in Bandcamp if you be BMX Band. It's My Chain. It's coming out at the end of this month. And next month, our album C86, which I mentioned earlier, our album from 1989, is getting reissued in vinyl. So both of those albums out in vinyl. My Chain's never been out before. There's also currently a single out which is a collaboration between myself and Anton Newcomb of the Brian Jonestown Massacre. But importantly to me, with Sean Dixon, a hi-fi Sean, a, who I started BMX Bandits with back in the day. So I, that's like the first big thing that we've done for like over 30 years. Oh. And that's also available on Bandcamp and it's called Razor Blades and Honey. So please check these things out. And um, as I say, so we're celebrating our past but we're also celebrating the future. Nice. Well, I'll, I'll put all of that in the show notes as well, and I'll make sure I include it when I'm promoting the... Cool. I can send yeah. you some links. And yeah, oh, that'd be amazing. If you could, yeah, wicked. That'd be great. But Brilliant. thanks so much. It's meant a lot to me to speak to you, so thank you. And, cool. Uh, no, it's been a pleasure. And, and yeah, well, I hope we stay in touch. And we're on Yeah, don't be a stranger. And, uh, yeah, if I'm up at Cowinan, I'll, I'll give you a knock. <laughs> cool. Magic. It just felt so good and life-affirming to speak to Douglas T. Stewart of the BMX Bandits. It was a great hour. Thanks so much, Douglas. Douglas has been a huge hero of mine for a long time and to get the chance to spend an hour in his warm, friendly and gentle company was just a real honour. Massive thanks to Douglas and also to the man himself, Alan McGee, for helping me to connect with Douglas. Some useful links are going to be in the podcast episode notes, but just in case you missed it, if you want to participate in Douglas's weekly online quiz, it's facebook.com forward slash glitterati show. That's facebook.com forward slash glitterati show. Here's a Bandcamp link also to get the new single from Anton Newcomb and Hi-Fi Sean. It's bmxbandits.bandcamp.com forward slash releases bmxbandits.bandcamp.com forward slash releases Lastly, there's a link for you to buy My Chain on vinyl, which is a BMX Bandits album if you don't already know, glorious album and it's at interval.bandcamp.com forward slash album forward slash my hyphen chain That's interval.bandcamp.com forward slash album forward slash my hyphen chain If you're stuck, just go to the programme notes and you can pick it up from there. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I hope that it filled you with as much joy, nostalgia and happiness that it did for me. Please do share this podcast with your 90s obsessed friends and follow me on at my 90s music podcast on Facebook and Twitter and at my 90s music pod on Instagram. 
Lastly, do please go to Mixcloud to hear my 90s based radio show. Just search for Supersonic 90s Radio Show on Mixcloud and you'll find it there. Until next time, I've been Mark McSee. This has been my 90s music podcast. Keep it 90s, over and out.